Welcome to Base Liberty, episode 39. Today is Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. Darren Wisely here, as always, a pleasure to be with you. Uh, but especially today, we got a special guest on the show, Alex Harvey. We're going to be talking about money. Uh, Alex, is he graduated from Hillsdale College in 2019. He holds his bachelor's degree in finance and currently works as uh, an investor relations analyst with head funds, PE funds, with a Fortune 500 company in the Chicago area. So, Alex, how are you doing today, man? Darren, I'm doing good, thanks. How are you today? I'm great, and uh, I'm pumped to have you on, and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. It's um, really great to be here. Yeah, and Alex is a great guy. He's a friend of mine. I met him through a mutual friend who he also went to Hillsdale College with, and uh, they're roommates. So, Alex is a real great guy, and I'm looking forward uh, to what he has to share with us today. Uh, of course, a really smart guy. Um, so let's get started. Uh, we're talking about money today. What is money? Darren, that's a good question. Um, money is a lot of things. It's very central to our lives. Um, whether you're buying food or saving for a house or whatever it is, money is something that allows us to interact within with other people within a market system. Um, we're essentially engaging in economic activity, and it's profoundly important to society for that reason. Um, that being said, a lot of people don't really understand a lot of the vital features of what money is and why some things serve as good forms of money and some things aren't good forms of money. So what I want to do is kind of touch on the history of money, touch on what makes money um, good money, what makes money bad money, um, what forms of money have overtaken other forms of money over time. And, and then I want to talk a little bit about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies fit into that framework. Um, so I guess I'll start by saying that at its most primitive form, money allows people that have subjective preferences to interact in a market. And it does that by essentially conveying information. So money is as much a language as it is a bearer instrument or an instrument of value. Money is essentially a language. So um, a good example of this is, and you're a free market guy, so I know a lot of your listeners probably are um, as well. So some of this may be, um, you know, I'm beating a dead horse a little bit, but I think it's important to lay out, um, you know, the full spread. So I guess Absolutely. a good example of, of showing why, you know, how money serves as a language, um, uh, you know, an example I like to use is if you think about, say, um, you know, there was a, a couple of years ago, there was an earthquake in Chile and um, it absolutely decimated a, a, a few of the copper mines in Chile. And Chile is one of the main producers of copper uh, globally. So initially, when, when you have this um, event happen, um, copper prices skyrocket. Um, and so that sends a signal to anybody that, that uses copper throughout the world that that you know, copper has now got, gotten way more expensive. And that in and of itself is a um, communication of information. And businesses, individuals, people that deal in the copper markets take that information and they walk it back and they make decisions based around that information. And so even though you know, Chile is one third of the copper production in the world comes from Chile, um, because of people taking that information and using it saying, okay, well, copper is now really expensive. So maybe we can not buy as much and we can save, you know, buy some later on down the road, or, you know, we, we already have a surplus of copper. So let's hold off on buying right now. And as a result of that information of the, the increase in the price of copper, um, 
you know, people will adjust their demand accordingly. And within a week of that earthquake, the price of copper went back down to the price, uh, you know, basically previous prices before that earthquake had happened, even though one third of that supply had essentially been cut off. So that's essentially what I, I'm trying to get at in one sense is that money is as much a communicate a form of communication as it is a um, you know bare instrument for value. Um, so I think that is an important thing to keep in mind as we move forward with this discussion. Um, I would almost wager that money is analogous to language in the sense that words are expressed use, are used to express feelings and ideas. And money is essentially a common language to express how we value goods, uh, services, or, or anything else that we can fathom. Yeah, that's really interesting, talking about money as a language. Um, I know Mises has defined money as a universally employed medium of exchange. And in human action, he defined it a little differently. Um, he said it's a commonly used medium of exchange. So it kind of goes along with what you're saying there. And mm -hmm. uh, I noticed in your copper Chile example, you would say it sounds like, at least to me, you're saying it's it's a supply and demand uh, type of thing, right? Right. It's essentially the uh, form of language used in supply and demand. Um, so I guess the textbook economics definition of money is is three things. It's a unit of account. It's a store of value and it's a medium of exchange. So it is. As a unit of account, it's common across many different peoples. They can say, oh, this is $5 or this is $10. It's that, it's that accounting aspect of it, and that goes back into the language of it as well. But it's also a, a medium of exchange, um, allows for that sort of uh, marketplace um, setup where people can trade goods and services. And then it's also a store of value, which brings into um, account the idea of time, right? So time, um, you know, passes by and money will money is a way to store value um, for later consumption down the road. And so with that, with that sort of framework in place, I'm going to just talk a little bit about the history um, of what has been used as money. So one of the big um, one of the big ticket items there is going to be gold. Um, so gold's was, you know, widely adopted uh, quite a while ago. And it's, it's kind of universally accepted as a global medium of exchange. And, and this, I think, largely stems from its qualities and what makes it good money. So gold is transportable. It's, it can be moved across vast stretches of land without too much strain. Um, it's durable. Um, and it has a unique um, you know, chemical structure that is important as well. It's very difficult to counterfeit gold. Um, and it's divisible. So you can have gold bars or you can have gold coins. Um, so these are very important features of money. So what I've touched on so far being transportability, durability, uniqueness, um, and then what 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 was that uh, divisibility, and then fungibility as well as another key aspect of money. So fungibility being um, the denominations are equivalent. So a you know a pound of gold is always going to be a pound of gold or an ounce or or however um, you want to measure it. That fungibility aspect is important as well. Um, and so the most important thing, and this is the this is kind of like the big ticket item of of these characteristics of money is store of value or something called the stock to flow ratio. So how well does that currency carry value across time? Um, gold has a very high stock to flow ratio, which means if you think about the stock is the amount of gold that's currently in circulation on the planet. Um, and then the flow is the amount of new gold that gets added every year. 
the flow is so minuscule relative to um, the stock that essentially the the supply cannot be hyperinflated, and because of that, money will carry value across time better than any other um, asset. So you can't just go and create gold out of thin air. You know, you have to go to a gold mine, mine gold, and there's um, that that process is expensive and um, it requires real labor to do. And so all of those things co- come into play, and it's a scarce element on our planet as it is. So I think historically gold offers the most secure and predictable means of storing value um, through, you know, different fluctuations in in civilization and and what have you. Um, I think, you know, certain perceptions of, of, and sentiments toward gold may have changed over time, but ultimately it's intrinsic properties um, remain relatively constant. So optimal stock to flow ratio, ultimately allows for limited inflation and ensures that the value won't be eroded by oversupply. Um, So when currency is pegged to gold, um, that to an underlying asset such as gold, um, that high stock to flow ratio is is vital to ensuring that inflation isn't um, too rampant and um, that the the supply is kept in check. Um, So I guess like historically, if we look back, you know, we started out using collectibles, seashells and stones and and different things. And, and, you know, uh, over time, people began to realize that as, you know, a a currency is only as valuable as it is, um, as its ability is to protect itself from the value erosion that's caused by inflation. Um, And so, uh, you know, you look at historically, Europe started using um, gold and Various countries throughout Europe in the 1700s pegged their currencies to gold. So each currency was essentially just a different weight of gold. Um, So Britain was the first to adopt this in 1717 under the direction of Isaac Newton, and it would remain that way until 1914. Um, During this time, you know, Britain basically became a superpower of Europe. Um, they, they, and I think this is intrinsically linked to the fact that they were on the gold standard. Um, many nations followed suit. Um, they collaterally backed their fiat currencies with gold. And this period in history is known as the Belle Epoque. Um, it was essentially the creation of modern superpowers in Europe. You had revolutions in, in art, in culture, in, um, inventions and a lot of inventions that were kind of brought out of the darkness, sort of a zero to one style inventions that took place, essentially things that had never been created before, such as, you know, inventions in modern medicine and communications and sort of, you know, things like that really kind of came out of this period where every every nation was pegged to this hard money standard. Um, unfortunately, 1914 and, you know, the guns of war start blazing. And before yeah. you know it, every single European country, it's completely deviated from the gold standard, except for Sweden um, and Switzerland. Um, but essentially all of the, all of these countries um, were tempted by the idea of debasing their currency to build tanks and bombs and guns and uniforms and all of this. So um, governments essentially had the power over their treasuries so they could just quietly deviate from the gold standard. And because the gold was all stored in one vault anyway, it was really easy to just sort of say, oh, this, you know, print more paper notes. And in the mentality of the person that's using the the currency, they're still using the paper. So they don't really experience that 
direct effect of deviating from the gold standard because in their mind, the paper has the value because that's what they interact with every day. Um, and so that kind of creates a psychological barrier that makes it easier to deviate. Um, so, you know, we have countries financing the cost of war um, with printing fiat currency and um, the ease with which a government could extract wealth through inflation was far more effective than, um, you know, through coercive taxation. So um, you you even see countries going so far as to make it illegal to redeem gold or, you know, temporarily suspend gold convertibility. Um, and so all of this kind of comes at the at the cost of the long term supply of the currency, the long term store of value proposition that the currency has. Um, so that's kind of like a history of of the importance of sound money. And, and Mises, I know you're a big Mises guy. He talks a lot about sound money as well. So some of this is probably review, but I think it's important to kind of have that background in, in mind. Well, I, yeah, I think it is too. And I think a lot of the listeners, they might understand the concept of sound money, um, but giving out these terms and stuff and, and providing the framework, which you did excellently. And I appreciate um, that's going to be important, you know, moving forward and really understanding these concepts. It's kind of like math, you know, you have to do basic addition and subtraction before you move on to algebra or, or something like that. But um, that history is really interesting. I never had really put that together about uh, the superpowers like Britain and having sound money being uh, essential to that. But that, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, that's really interesting. I did want to just backtrack just one second. Sure. And, talk about how um, money's developed and for for the longest time in history, gold and silver. Um, before that, it was other commodities, like you said, seashells or grain, um, things that were. But um, then the, the paper currency, when that started coming into play, um, would you say that was mainly just due to the easier portability? So if you're coming into the village, you know, you don't have a bunch of uh, gold clanging in your sack so you get robbed is that kind of the um, the reason for that yeah I, I think it ultimately is like so you look at the the emergence of the first bankers of the world the Medici family was the first bankers they were Italians and then one brother um, moved to London or Paris I think and so the, the the idea was that you could deposit your gold with the Medici in Rome or wherever and travel safely without having a lot of gold on your person and you arrive in London or Paris and you go to the other Medici and you get your gold back from him. And so there's that, that's kind of how the bottleneck starts. So I think this is one of the biggest problems with gold is you can't wire gold to someone uh, halfway around the world. You have that, that while it's transportable, there's issues with the transportability of gold. Um, and so that creates a bottleneck where you have to trust someone to put that gold in a safe. You have to trust that they, you know, whatever you've, you're redeeming in place of gold, that paper money or whatever it is, you have to trust that that gold is still going to be in the safe when you get back. So that, like I said, is, is probably the biggest issue with gold. It, we've learned a lot from gold as a, as a unit. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, gold is necessarily passe or that that it's not a good investment. But I think that there are certain limitations. And, and I think additionally, one of my favorite reasons why, um, you know, I think gold might be, you know, a little bit past its prime is that uh, there's 
you know, when you start to think about the next few hundred years, I mean, you've got, um, you know, more gold on an asteroid flowing, floating through space than, um, you know, any than you know, there's like 10 times more gold on some random asteroid floating through space than there is in the entire world. So once we talk about, you know, space travel and, and off planet mining and all of these things, you start to, um, you know, realize that it it that store of value aspect could be corroded um, pretty quickly if, if we get to that point. So um, that's kind of uh, something to keep in mind as well. But yes, yeah, sounds like something Elon Musk would get behind is uh, right. mining space gold or something. Exactly. But, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, you pointed out um, how World War One was uh, very much uh, a world changing event in terms of currency, in terms of fiat money, inflation, um, not having the money fixed to a price, say, gold or silver. Um, and I, I like what you pointed out about that in terms of inflating the money supply uh, is much easier than coercive taxation. And I think, I mean, just like you can, that's relatable today, right? These stimulus packages, um, they're not being paid with tax dollars. Some of the money's borrowed, but you can only borrow so much money. It, um, eventually, your creditors are going to say, hey, start paying us back or else we're not going to issue anymore. Exactly. So then you're, left, then you're left with inflationary policies. And I think why this is so pernicious, from my opinion, is because if you work, say you make, you know, $50,000, you get you pay your income tax, you know, 20 percent or whatever it is. You say, well, I'm not voting for these politicians. You know, they just took, you know, a fifth of my income. But if it if the money's inflated, you're losing value of the money you worked for. But unless you're really, you know, pay attention to this stuff like you and I and, you know, there's a good amount of people that do. But the average person isn't sitting there thinking, well, I lost, you know, X percent of my income to the Federal Reserve printing money this year. It's it's a lot more of a sneaky way to uh, take your income. I, I totally agree. And I think there's there's a lot of moving parts to how this works because it's not something that's made, it's not something that's clearly obvious to the public that's going on. You kind of have to parse through the the, the publications and, and read some books and, you know, scratch your head a little bit to figure out how it's going on because it's it's kind of sneaky that's, this stuff that's done behind the scenes. I think another important point to note is how fractional reserve banking plays a role in all of yeah. this. Um, so you have something called the money multiplier effect, where essentially banks can receive money from individuals and they only have to hold on to a small fraction of it and they can loan out the rest of that money. So that in itself also creates um, a, a boost in the supply of, of the currency. Um, so, you know, when banks overextend their credit markets beyond a sustainable risk profile, like what happened in 2008, um, there's no ensuing um, consequences for these misjudgments because um, their in incentive structures have essentially been completely compromised by insurance from the Federal Reserve that they're going to get, um, you know, reimbursed. And I think this is inherently destructive. I mean, I think we need we need skin in the game policies. And if everybody's going to get a bailout, no matter what they do, then there's no incentive to be smart and have, a, you know, a, an adequate risk profile and and, you know, play the conservative game. Everyone will just loan out money willy nilly because there's you know, interest and they want to make as much money as they can. So it it, it becomes, uh, you know, a really slippery slope. And I'm not against, you know, loaning money or or the fractional reserve system at all. But it gets to a certain point where you have to ask yourself, um, how is this sustainable?
it's it's a moral hazard, so to speak. Exactly. Yes, I know you're um, fond of that. <laughs> that <term>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with talking about um, that, um, when did and I know it would probably vary by country, but when did uh, like central banking in terms of just the concept? I know in the United States, you know, we have the Federal Reserve in 1913. Um, is that about the time when you would say central banks started really getting involved uh, around that World War One period, like you're saying, and um, printing money that necessarily wasn't tied to anything? Yeah, I think if you want to look back, I think World War II is a great place to sort of start um, coming out of the Great Depression um, and and post World War II. Um, you have a lot of a lot of loans being passed out from the United States, and one of the biggest, I think, one of the biggest ways that we scammed other countries after World War II was that when we um, we were bailing out France. We were bailing out, you know, various European countries. And we said, hey, 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 all right, here's the deal. You guys are all in debt. So why don't you give us all your gold and we'll give you dollars instead? So that's basically what we did post-World War II. Um, and in order to, uh, I mean, it, 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 you can get into the, a lot of the history of it in a lot more detail. And I think studying the IMF is pretty interesting because that's kind of a giant scam. Um, but, you know, we don't have too much time. So I'm trying to keep it somewhat high level. But um, I think the big, the important thing to note is that with a sound money system, government expenditures are limited only to the taxes that they can collect. But with unsound money, it is, it is only restrained by how much money it can create out of thin air before the currency is completely destroyed. So that allows for a much more effective wealth transfer. Um, and, you know, the, the system is far from perfect. And I think that, you know, if you look at and going back to your question, I think Bretton Woods is a good place to, to start. Um, and um, I guess we essentially became the fractional reserve lender of the entire world at during Bretton Woods. And um, and it's interesting because France was the first country to catch on and they kind of called our bluff. And so this is what you um, may know of the, as the Nixon shock, which was when France basically brought a, over a bunch of battleships. I think it was in the 80s or 70s. And um, they essentially said, hey, we want our gold back, you know, because like you guys ripped us off. We don't want these stupid dollars like we want our gold back. And um, essentially this triggered a domino effect where other European countries were like eager to redeem their gold as well. And Nixon essentially said, sorry, like you can't have your gold back. And he at that point just completely nixed the gold standard, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we've been off the gold standard, I think, since 72 completely. But of course, they get to keep all the gold anyway. So it's it's definitely a slippery slope. And um, that, that was essentially a quick fix to, uh, you know, a problem that's way more long term than just. Um, you know, the, the, the Nixon shock itself, because we had essentially a currency crisis. And um, I think a good way to look at this problem is from the idea of what's called the easy money trap. Um, essentially, anything used as a store of value will have its supply increased as much as possible. Um, anything whose supply can be easily increased will um, essentially be have value eroded and destroy the wealth of the people that hold their value in that system. Um, 
So all, all, all the time you see unsound money, it frequently aligns with civilizational decline, societal collapse, war, um, starvation. I mean, all of these things um, are a direct result of a currency that is too, it's too, easily to, too easy to inflate the supply of that currency. Um, so I think that that's kind of a fascinating uh, phenomena. And, the, you know, the question is, how can we protect our value from that? So right now they'll say, well, you got to invest in stocks because your money is losing value at two to three percent a year. So you essentially are forced to not sit in cash. No one wants to sit in cash anymore. So they have to put their money in equities. But it's kind of a it's kind of a rigged system because now you have to um, you know, put your money somewhere else. And I think from a philosophical standpoint, um, it creates a lot of problems because what you have is this idea of time preference where high time preference individual, they value the present moment over the future. So they value that immediate consumption, that immediate gratification over any long term um, delay of gratification and unsound money, easy money, fiat currency stimulates a um, a high time preference because you essentially what is it like i mean it's everywhere in our culture it's spend now consume now um borrow now you know max max it out now don't sit in cash spend your cash either buy stocks or buy this or buy that you know dollar bill y'all and like no one is actually saving their money and and fiat money disincentivizes you to save your money which in turn which in and of itself essentially um further incentivizes that um sort of high time preference um, view. So when you drop your time preference, when you start saving for the future, when you start, um, you know, delaying that immediate gratification and consumption and instead um, thinking about the long term, thinking about that macro perspective, um, I think that's a very beneficial thing to have. Unfortunately, the current economic system doesn't really incentivize anybody to do that because uh, and why would they? Right. Because then, the, you know, no one would be buying all of their pointless trinkets and and consuming all of the you know unhealthy food and and you know worthless art that they're creating you know <laughs> yeah yeah that's a really good point i thought a lot about how savers get screwed under the the system um on, on a related note but not the exact same do you want to touch on uh the cancel on effect yeah i think that that's really the multi, the money multiplier effect, right? I think it's it's pretty similar, but it's the idea that so you know, and there's there's like a, you can Google this, and and there's a great sort of visual of it, but it's essentially you know, John loads the bank a hundred dollars, the bank keeps ten dollars, loans out ninety dollars, then that guy that gets the ninety dollars puts ninety dollars in the bank, the bank keeps nine dollars, loans out the other you know eighty one, then that guy with eighty one puts his eighty one in the bank, the bank keeps you know seven dollars, loans out the rest, and before you know it, you have like a thousand dollars of money that's created out of essentially just over leverage. Um, so, you know, that contributes to the problem. Um, and, and when you have extremely low interest rates, um, I think that is a problem as well. So people will cite things like the debt to GDP ratio and say, oh, well, you know, the debt is under control because it's all a function of the GDP, um, which is fine and dandy. But if you actually look at the debt to GDP ratio over the last like 100 years, I mean, it's just it's irresponsible. I mean, the debt has ballooned in respect of the GDP. So it's really it's it's, it's like the question is, who's going to keep track of this? Who's going to who's going to, you know, 
draw a line in the sand and say, okay, well, you know, the debt can't go past this point. It's like you can point to the debt to GDP ratio all you want, but if you actually examine how the debt to GDP ratio, how that relationship has progressed, it's it's problematic and no one is really, um, you know, pointing that out. Uh, I mean, people are, but no one with anything, any ability to do anything about it. So, yeah, exactly. And it puts, um, you know, on that note, what I think a lot of people don't realize is this benefits the well-connected, the banks, like you were saying, Wall Street, because they are the first to get this freshly printed money and they get this money before. Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah. The, yeah. You can explain it better than I can. It, it, so the, the banks and the bank's friends get the freshly printed money before anyone else does, which is, is really not fair because here's the thing is that when the money is first created, the prices are still lower. So obviously everybody knows inflation causes prices to go up, but it's not it's, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it takes a long time for these things to play out. And especially with certain controls that are in place to um, stop these things from happening all at once. And, you know, the, the baskets of consumer price index goods that are chosen specifically to delay this hyperinflationary scenario as long as possible. But so the, the first guy that gets that freshly printed money, he gets to spend it at old money prices at pre-inflationary prices so who gets to who gets to spend their money at the at the post-inflationary prices is you know john doe down the street who's just trying to work his nine to five and get something out of it so it's like i mean you gotta ask yourself like you've been working for you know you're a you're a boomer or whatever you've been working for 50 60 70 years where what do you have to show for it i mean everything that you've worked for is like maybe you have you know, some, some savings and some IRA and, and that's all great. And you worked hard for that. And that's, you know, something to be proud of, but um, it's really, it's gotten out of hand with the inflation. And I think that's a lot of other problems that people look at in our society and say, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Like all of these things are wrong. A lot of those are sort of second order effects of um, unsound money and, and yeah. essentially economic uh you know, economic, um, I, I'm trying to think of the right word here, but just irresponsibility. I yeah, mean, sure. Yeah. yeah, I like this quote. Uh, I think it's from Mises. Um, it might be Henry Hazlitt, but it says, there can be no such thing as a Keynesian state on the gold standard any more than a cocaine addict or compulsive gambler can do on a strict budget. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> based, yeah, that's a yeah, good one. Yeah, it's basically, you know, they have this power to inflate the money. We can't expect them to be responsible with it because, I mean, like you said, they're completely irresponsible. Yeah. And so here we are. Um, you know, we've been watching this unfold for decades. Um, every time Congress tries to draw a line in the sand, the line gets waltzed over um, and we draw another line and then we waltz over it again. And, um, you know, the question on anybody's mind is how long can this sustain? And I mean, now we're looking at inflation levels and spending levels and debt levels that we've never seen before. And with the coronavirus and the stimulus that comes along with that, um, it's been taken to a whole new level. And it makes, you know, it makes the um, it makes the reaction that 
happened in 2008, um, you know, that quantitative easing, the word that they like to use, it makes that look like, uh, you know, a walk in the park. I mean, that's like allowance from daddy compared to what we're doing now. Um, so I think that's where Bitcoin comes into play. Um, so let me just kind of touch on that for a little yeah, bit. Please do. Um, and, and it's, it's ironic because, you know, this anonymous computer programmer, Satoshi uh, Nakamoto, uh, essentially invented something called the blockchain with Bitcoin, and he did it in 2009, right after um, the financial crisis. And he was very well aware of all of these ideas that I that we've just discussed. And in the first, in the genesis block of the Bitcoin blockchain, um, he put a little message in there. And it's a message from, uh, I think it's a German newspaper, um, and it says, you know, something that it says the date, whatever it is, you know, 2009 chancellor on the brink of second bailouts for banks. And it's just kind of a little um, I think it's a little message about um, the absurdity of these, you know, these markets and the way that these things work and that there's now second bailouts going on for these banks. And um, it's, you know, so essentially um, what Bitcoin is, is um, it's a decentralized payment um and monetary system that has a disinflationary monetary policy. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, the inflation of new currency is algorithmically embedded into the source code of the software and it's deterministic. So every four years, um, the, the amount of Bitcoin that's created gets cut in half. Um, and so we can go into mining and um, these different um, terminologies, but essentially at a high level, what you have is every 10 minutes, um, approximately every 10 minutes, a certain amount of Bitcoin are created. Um, so pre-March 2019, um, or sorry, pre-March 2020, um, there were um, around 12.5 Bitcoin were created every 20 minutes or every 10 minutes pre-March 2020. And then on March 2020, which was that four-year mark, that that 10 minute um, supply reward got cut to 6.25. Um, and so now every 10 minutes, 6.25 new Bitcoin are being created. And once we reach the year 2150, that supply will be completely cut off at 21 million Bitcoin. So there will only ever be 21 million of these things. Oh, wow. um, and it, it um, so in that sense, it's a deterministic disinflationary monetary policy. Um, and the most important or one of them, I think that feature in, its, in and of itself is very revolutionary. Um, but another feature that I think is important is that there's no centralized issuer. There's no um, centralized controller. So, so if we look at the, the typical way that a computer system works, you usually have a central server, a central processing unit that controls all the information of the system. And then you have like this would be like Google or Facebook. You have a, a massive server somewhere out in Silicon Valley that holds all the information and data on it. And you as a as a user, you put your computer up and you connect to that and you can get whatever information you need. Um, the difference with Bitcoin is that there's no centralized party. It's all just distribu distributed on a horizontal axis. So everybody is their own server. So when you mine Bitcoin, you are essentially using your computer um, and you out essentially donating some of your um, electricity to secure that network. Um, so I think at a high level, that's 
kind of like a, a basic summary of it. Um, it, it essentially prioritizes a store of value monetary policy, um, and, and it wants to essentially achieve sim- something similar to like a digital gold. Um, and so I think that uh, it's a good way to combat the hyperinflation and the rampant um, excessive monetary policy of these Keynesians that are currently running the show. And it's a way of creating a competition for money. It's like now the dollar isn't the only place where you can park your value. Um, you have other options. And the and and the, this discussion is now centered around inflation and store of value and what is money. And, uh, and all of these questions are kind of bubbling up to the surface. Whereas before, you just kind of swipe your credit card or, you know, hand the guy a $20 bill and you don't really even think about it. But now it's a very relevant part of the discussion and it's created a competition of money. And there's other cryptocurrencies that have emerged. I don't really buy into any of the other ones um, right now. I haven't seen very much compelling um, evidence for them, but that isn't to say that, um, you know, there isn't some value there. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, scam potential with some of these, you know, Litecoin and, and what have you. But um, I really, my primary focus is, is Bitcoin and, and that monetary policy. Yeah, I think my favorite thing about Bitcoin is that decentralized nature that you spoke of, because the reason, uh, for instance, in the United States, uh, the federal government can print as much money as they want because what they have a monopoly. They have a monopoly on the money supply. And you wouldn't want the government to be your sole manufacturer of shoes or food. Why would you want them to do it with money? And I think if people start thinking, more people think that way, they'll have a better understanding of why decentralizing uh, money is so important. Yeah, it's really, it's not... It's not important until it is, and then it's very vital. Um, you know, it's great to have centralized servers, and, and you know, sometimes you know, centralization is the way to go. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to distrib- put everything on a distributed ledger. We don't want to decentralize everything because a lot of things aren't that we don't need it for everything. But um, I think with our money, it's important to consider it at least. Um, the idea of being permissionless, like you don't have to. Um, you know, pass a background check to use Bitcoin. You don't have to, you know, anybody can use it, whether you're in Uganda or, you know, America or China or India, it's, it's, it's global. Um, and it's, it's not centralized. So, you know, people fear some sort of one world government and global currency, um, which could, you know, which is definitely something to be wary of, but I think where Bitcoin, um, you know, pacifies that argument is that it's not controlled by anyone. It's it's from day one. It was programmed how many Bitcoin will be created. And and it was also programmed that anybody can use it. So that's not um, that's not really aligned with this sort of like, you know, global, um, you know, I don't know, some kind of mark of the beast scenario or whatever people are freaking out about. Um, So, yeah, I think ultimately money has a Darwinistic aspect to it. So there's there's an evolutionary concept for why gold triumphed over so many competitors. Um, gold maintains a high stock-to-flow ratio. It's extremely scarce. It's impossible to synthesize. Um, it's difficult to increase the amount of gold in supply without um, expending a significant amount of time and energy and resources um, to extract that gold from the ground. So the um, 
you know, gold's inability to be inflated easily puts a natural upper bound on its flow, right? We're back to that stock to flow model. Um, and so essentially Bitcoin is mi- mirrored off of that, but it provides a um, sort of a 21st century uh, digital version of that. Um, you know, I think it's also important to keep in mind that, believe it or not, fiat currencies have an average life expectancy of like 20 to 50 years. Um, so the dollar is already kind of at the tail end of that. Um, and, and I would, I would essentially start the start that uh, timekeeping at 1972 when we deviated from the gold standard, that was essentially the birth of the U S dollar that we have today. Um, because before that it was collateralized by gold to some degree or another. And, and there was of course periods of debasement before that it wasn't just gold standard, no gold standard. It was, it was gold standard and then slightly less gold, slightly less gold, slightly less gold equals $1 and then no gold. Um, but of course the government still hangs on to, onto the gold while telling you that it's worthless. <laughs> so, right. um, yeah, ultimately, I, think... I, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I think a great example of that. Obviously, you could talk about uh, the Weimar Republic after World War One with their hyperinflation. But even in the United States, um, we had a fiat, fiat currency to fund the revolution because obviously we don't have a ton of precious metals just sitting around uh, for us to use to wage the war for independence. And uh, they had what was called the Continental. And that's where the saying not worth a Continental comes from, because uh, the money basically became worthless. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can look at Zimbabwe, you can look at Venezuela right now, you can look at mm-hmm. all of these countries. And it's in, 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 a, in a sense, it's, it's um, a little bit upsetting to even talk about because we can kind of hypothesize you know, hypothesize and play these kind of, um, you know, war games and and talk about these ideas, but it's really people's lives that are getting destroyed by, um, you know, hyperinflation. And um, I think there's a quote by Mises somewhere that I think really sums it up, but it's essentially, um, it talks about how, you know, the Bill of Rights should really include an amendment that, that lays out a firm uh, monetary policy for um, inflation. And I think there is, there is something in the constitution that's just been completely overlooked about, about, um, you know, creating money out of thin air, but I think it's uh, article one section eight. You Um, would know. (laughs) I'm not positive, but I think it's an article one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's very important. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I get a lot of criticism from people when I talk about how this this inflationary policy is not sustainable. People say, look, we've done it for, you know, X amount of years. We're fine. And, uh, you know, almost like I'm a kook or something for thinking this way. But one really important thing to consider is we right now, the wealth we have, um, or at least the illusion of wealth, if, if you really want to uh, get into <laughs> it, is... But the nice lifestyle we have as Americans is built on the backs of our grandparents, our great grandparents, the generations before, because those generations, obviously, they worked extremely hard, but they were very frugal and they saved their money. And even though we're being reckless now um, and not responsible, we've had so much wealth from that industrial revolution, that period of working hard, saving money, being responsible, that we're still living off that. And that's mm-hmm. why we haven't really collapsed yet. 
Right. And I think to anybody that that argues that, well, it's lasted so long that it has to last even longer. They need to read uh, Nassim Taleb's book, Taleb's book, The Black Swan, which I don't know if you've read, but um, it, it makes a very compelling case for the fact that just because something has lasted for a certain amount of time doesn't mean that there's a guaranteed future for that thing. So um, right. the example that comes to mind is uh the idea of a of a, a turkey who's being kept on a farm and you know the turkey is, has a very happy life and every day that it doesn't get killed it becomes more and more confident that it won't ever get killed um well you know november comes around and uh you know all of a sudden that turkey is uh you know on the chopping block and right. and then you're really like you know but I, you know it's it's the same idea of banks being too big to fail. I mean that's a totally wrong way to look at it. That the the correct way should be banks too big that they absolutely have to fail because yeah. there's no other way. I mean uh you know these systems when they become hyper complex, they become hyper vulnerable at the same time. Um the more complex something is um, in a sense, it becomes uh, more vulnerable to attack. So that's one of the cool things about Bitcoin is that it's written in such a basic programming language that um, it's really impossible to hack it um, unless you have something like a quantum computer um, w- or something like that. It's really, uh, you know, it's very resilient at, and the attack surface is extremely small um, and you have obviously exchanges getting hacked. Um, Bitcoin's being stolen through irresponsibility of the management of the the coins, but the the network itself has never been hacked, and I don't believe it ever will, um, at least not in our lifetime. So, um, yeah, I think that it's a very interesting proposition of a new new monetary system, and I'm not arguing that it is necessarily going to be the next dollar or it's going to usurp, um, you know, some other currencies. I think the important thing is that there's now a discussion being had about the value or the um, features of money and what makes money um, good, what makes money bad and how, um, you know, and, and I think Bitcoin plays an important role in kicking that discussion off. And, um, and I think as well, just in terms of the community, I mean, I've, been I worked at a, a startup Bitcoin hedge fund a couple of years ago and I've kind of made some contacts there and I'm now um, just kind of in touch with different people in the community and, and on Twitter and you kind of have like a whole crypto side of of things on Twitter and and um, and I, I really do think that it's rare that you see such a uh, diverse and highly talented group of people coming at it from an Austrian economic standpoint, from a legal standpoint, from a computer programming standpoint. I mean, you have really the best and brightest thinkers in all of these different fields are all sort of coming together around this one thing. So even in terms of a, of a social um, phenomena, I think it's important to not neglect the fact that you have a lot of talent that's pooling around this thing. Um, and that's talking about it and, and talking about social implications and political implications and economic implications. And I think that's important as well. Um, so, you know, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. And obviously the price has gone, uh, actually gone up quite a lot in the last few months here. So, um, you know, I don't know, I'm not going to give advice about whether it's a good time to buy or not. Cause I, you know, I'm not a financial advisor and you should be only spending what you can afford to lose on, on any investment. Um, but I think it's important to at least consider it. Yeah. 
So I just want to wrap up with a couple more things on Bitcoin. I'll let you go because um, I know your time is valuable. And um, so I just had a couple criticisms. Um, so this first criticism, this isn't necessarily my criticism of Bitcoin, sure. but it's one, one you hear a lot. So I wondered your thoughts. And I just wanted to say, you know, I'm not really that tech savvy, at least for someone our age. You know, I can put a mic in and run a podcast. That's about it. So this whole technology is really fascinating to me. Um, but one criticism I hear a lot about Bitcoin is the fluctuation uh, in value of it and people thinking um, that makes it too unstable, not sustainable. Uh, what's your response to that? Sure. Um, I, I guess my initial response is to say that we are still so early. Um, we are still so early in this process. Um, and um, and so I think that needs to be considered as well, that you are, um, you know, you're engaged when you purchase Bitcoin, you're engaging in a, um, I think, in one hand, an, an act of economic revolution against the current system. Um, you're putting your capital at risk in a revolutionary new type of technology. And you are, um, I mean, you are risking, you know, you're risking your your value in something that hasn't necessarily been proven and hasn't been insured by the FDIC and had, you know, so there's, there's inherently a lot of risk associated with that. Um, that being said, there's, I think they, they, these numbers refresh all the time, but there's very few days out of the year that if you had bought Bitcoin on, on such and such a day, you would be underwater. And right now it's basically no days. I mean, um, so I think, if you're worried about the price, um, I, I always like to say you 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 want to have more than one bullet in your gun, right? So sure. if you're gonna go if you're gonna go and make an investment, whether it's a stock or um, a cryptocurrency or or anything, you don't want to just unload everything at one price. I think that's a that's a really foolish way to invest, unless you're um, extremely confident or the price is just completely bottomed out and you know you're kind of just yoloing into something. Um, I think. You know, keep keep a couple more bullets in the chamber. You know, if you got a thousand dollars to invest, put three hundred in, sit on it for a month, put another three hundred in, see where it goes. Um, you don't want to, you know, unload all your chips, uh, go all in on on one hand. You know, um, you want to keep something on the on the side pot. So um, that's what I would say as well. And then my last point to that would be, um, you know, I'm a young guy. I I can take risks. I have a pretty um, you know, a pretty high risk profile just because I've got my whole life ahead of me. And I don't think that somebody, you know, 50 or 60 years older would, would really, um, have the same risk tolerance. So you need to be, um, you need to be careful. And okay. One more point would be that, um, anytime you have a, a market that, doesn't doesn't really have any regulations around it. People can buy and sell anywhere without, you know, having a, you know, FDI, an SEC account or without working with one of these financial institutions. You get people that um, you get whales. I mean, you get people that are trying to make money. And in order to, for the whales, the big guys in the market to make money, they need a lot of little guys to, um, you know, be on the opposite side of the trade. So anytime a whale is making a huge purchase of Bitcoin, the price will go up substantially right. just from the fact that they are buying that much of it. So their goal is to have as many people be on the opposite side of that trade as possible. They want people to be selling when they're buying and they want people to be buying when they're selling. Um, so I think it's important to keep in mind 
that um, as the market matures, the whales will have less and less of an impact on the price. Um, and right now, I mean, I was when I was trading it a couple of years ago, it was um, I mean, it was a very stressful time. And I've since retired from trading and I'm just consider myself more of an investor now just because that volatility is pretty intense. And it's um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not for everyone. So um, if you're constantly looking at your investment every day, checking it, making sure you're not losing money. I would say you're probably you've probably overextended yourself and invested too much um, because my current investment is I check it like once every couple of weeks. I don't really uh, you know, I'm not sweating over it. I'm not losing sleep over it. And if you are, you've probably put in too much. So, um, you know, I think that's all important to um, keep in mind as you explore this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um Alex, I know you're not a big social media guy. If people want to find you, do you have any places they could look you up? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um, my username is um, Cosmic Sensations uh, with a with a O with a zero for the O. Um, okay. So that's kind of my that's my one um, social media site right now that I'm on. Um, I'm not uh, on Facebook or anything right now, so um, or Instagram, but. Uh, yeah, Twitter is where I spend most of my time um, in the social medias. So, Okay, I'll put a link to that, too, on the show notes page. So if people want to find you, they can do that. Um, yeah, Darren, you know what? I'm going to give you a couple more resources that I think will be interesting. So the, yeah. the, the paper that I've been referencing throughout this podcast is something that I wrote, um, which is on Medium.com with a couple of my buddies from the Bitcoin hedge fund that I worked with uh, back in the day. So um, I will put a link to that and that there's a there's a bibliography at the end of that paper and that should give people um you know a few other resources to look into as well um the one other um you know resource that i'll highlight is uh, a book called the bitcoin standard by uh, saifedean amus who's a um a really brilliant writer and a great economist uh, very much on the austrian persuasion and he's um really intelligent guy makes a amazing case for bitcoin and that book, the Bitcoin standard, um, you can, you know, I would say if you're really interested in this stuff, you should give that a read because, um, I was drawing from that a lot during this talk. Um, and it, it really flushes out the history of money in a much more detailed way. Um, you know, he doesn't really talk about Bitcoin until the last chapter of the book. So the entire book is essentially just context on money and why it's important and why you need to understand it from, um, you know, this, perspective in order to really understand the value proposition that Bitcoin has. That's really cool. Yeah, I'll definitely link both of those. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I'll definitely be checking uh, both the paper and the book out. That sounds really uh, interesting. You bet. Darren, thank right. you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for your time, Alex. You know, we ran about an hour, so I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to chat with me. And uh, maybe we'll do this again down the road, but uh, you take care, my man. My pleasure. I hope so, dude. Take care of yourself.